Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. In every episode, you'll hear stories of our authors of color, how God led them to write their books, and the challenges they had to overcome along the way. Welcome back to season three of the Every Voice Now podcast. My name is Paloma Lee, assistant producer here, and I'm thrilled to introduce the first of our incredible lineup of guests this season who will encourage and inspire you with the stories of the making of their books. Today, we're sharing our conversation with Bishop Claude R. Alexander Jr., senior pastor of the Park Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. A leader among both Christian and civic organizations, Bishop Alexander has consistently been listed among the most influential persons in Charlotte, working with government and community officials to address the community's most critical issues. He released two books with IVP in 2022, Necessary Christianity and, most recently, Becoming the Church. I hope you enjoy this conversation about his journey in ministry as well as the writing of Necessary Christianity. We're excited to welcome Bishop Claude Alexander to the Every Voice Now podcast. Thank you for taking the time to share with us today. Sure. Happy to do so. Could you just share a little bit about your home community, your family, and your current role at the Park Church? So for the past 32 years, it's been my privilege to pastor the Park Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. I came here at the age of 26. The uh, church displayed extreme faith, calling someone at the age of 26 who was single, who met none of their stated qualifications. They had incredible faith in God to follow what they believed to be God's leaning and extreme trust in who God could be in me and through me. Charlotte has grown and it is in many ways an awkward teenager wanting to be grown on the one hand and still wanting to be the kid on the other, wanting to be Metropolis on the one hand and wanting to be Mayberry on the other and seeking to negotiate the tension between those two desires, which has given our ministry and the larger Christian family a unique opportunity to bear witness to to Christ, certainly, and to the Ministry of Reconciliation as Charlotte comes to terms, not just with its history as it relates to race, but also its contemporary realities as it relates to race and increased ethnic diversity. Wow, what an interesting journey of getting to the role you're in today. And I want to hear more about that path to ministry. But first, could you share about your ethnic identity journey? And what are some key points along the way that stand out to you? Wow. So being born African-American, you really don't have a choice in many things. My biological parents 
divorced when I was two years old. And my mom, she and I, we would move from Washington, D.C. to Jackson, Mississippi in the summer of 1968. She moved to Jackson, Mississippi for two reasons. One, she would be marrying a young physician, Dr. Robert Smith, and she would be assuming the role of staff psychiatrist. And she was the first black psychiatrist in the state of Mississippi. My stepfather, whom she would be marrying, was heavily involved in the civil rights movement. He helped desegregate the American Medical Association. Wow. He would serve as a physician for Dr. King whenever he would be in Mississippi. Many people know of John Perkins' story. Well, my dad was, is John Perkins' physician. Oh, wow. And tended to him when he was beaten and left bloodied in that jail cell that he talks about. And so moving from D.C. in 1968 to Jackson, Mississippi, put one in the throes of racial tension and strife that I had not previously known in my five years earlier, born in Iowa, and then we moved to Kansas and then to Washington. It would be in 1969 that I would be really confronted with the notion of my otherness by being the only person of color in my class in the second grade and being called the N-word. And, you know, and not knowing fully what that meant. So when I told my mother that evening, I can remember the look on her face. Now, my mom is this intelligent psychiatrist, but at that moment, she was a mother having to tell her son not just what he was called, but why he was called that and having to do it in such a way that he could be affirmed and be able to go back into that environment the very next day. I cannot remember everything that she said, but the notion of having to be better, do better, be more than just to be seen as equal. Now, kids have an amazing way of coping. And so one of my ways of coping was to tell my classmates that the character Haji on Johnny Quest was my cousin. Now, I did not make the distinction of Haji being a Middle Eastern person of color. (laughs) (laughs) I just knew he was brown skinned and he was one of the few characters of color back then anywhere. And so when I told them that, I immediately got acceptance. I got acceptance because of a perceived relationship to someone seen as acceptable. And so the message very, very early was to be accepted. You have to be supra. And what a burden that is for somebody at the age of, at that time, seven years. Yeah. Seven years old. Yeah. So the notion of my identity was very, very early. Fast forward, that was the second grade in my 11th grade year. This was all within the Catholic school system. Some of those same people would elect me to be the first 
person of color to be vice president of the student body of that high school. Mm. So that that shows movement. Right. Mm -hmm. And which caused me to have hope, Mm -hmm. hope that I would need for years that would follow because of continued experiences in now, not just for me, but experiences that my daughters have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like your mother left a really powerful mark on your identity. Could you share more about her? So my mom, she was the uh, only girl and fourth born of five children to a pastor and a homemaker. And my grandfather, her father, would have a tenure of pastoring in Washington, D.C. and be part of a cadre of ministers whom President Truman and Eisenhower would convene as they were dealing with matters of desegregation, whether it was the desegregation of Washington, D.C. People don't realize that Washington, D.C. was a segregated city Hmm. for a long time. And her father helped steer her in the direction of medicine. And he was masterful in doing it by asking her, you know, just, you know, what is it that you want to do? And so she would say, let's say she was interested in medicine. And Susan, I said, well, I want to be a nurse. And he said, oh, so you want to be a nurse? Tell me about that. And she would talk and she said, well, do you like bathing people? Do you think you'd like dealing with bedpans? You think you'd like taking orders from doctors who know less than you? And she quickly said, no, <laughs> no to that. I said, oh, so you don't, well, what would you like to? She said, well, maybe I might like to be a doctor. And he then began to talk to, oh, well, now let's talk about what type of doctor. Now, this was, my mom was born in 1936. So the idea of her being, just being a doctor as a woman, not to mention a black woman, that was revolutionary. Yeah. And the field of psychiatry, even more so. But he built in her, he and her mother, my grandmother, built in her a confidence that she could do it. Mm -hmm. Now, along with this was she was a woman of immense faith. And so being able to pull upon the reservoir of her faith, as well as the confidence instilled in her by her parents, that buoyed her and enabled her to pursue that field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did her being such a strong woman of faith have any influence in you discerning your own path into ministry or how did that? oh, Oh, absolutely. So my mom was the first evangelist. She was the first person to talk to me about Christ. She was the first person to teach me about prayer. She was the first person to give me the scriptures. She was always active in the the church, working with young people in choirs. And so she would bring me along with her and we would have church at home. So after going to church, sometimes we would be back home and 
she would let me say whatever I wanted to say about what I thought about the scripture. And this was at three, four and five. Right. She didn't know what she was doing. And we would open the doors of the house as if we were opening the doors of the church, issuing an invitation. Those were the seeds sown by her that early and continued from my childhood. She would call us to prayer at the most unusual of times. One vivid example, it was a third Muhammad Ali, Ken Norton fight. And in the middle of us watching the fight, she wanted to call the family away from the fight. I'm like, surely God can wait <laughs> until after the fight is over for us to pray, right? That's but, too funny. Yeah, that was her. Wow. And I think I might be wrong on this, but I, I think I have heard before that you started even in ministry as a teenager. Is that correct? That's correct. At the age of 17. What yeah. was that journey like? How did that begin? So it began with both of my parents being physicians. Summer jobs were all medical. Whether I was working in the lab in my daddy's office or processing papers, Medicaid and Medicare for my mom, you know, medicine, medicine, medicine. That was it. And yet, probably around eighth or ninth grade, there was the sense of something different for me. Now, my mom had four brothers who were all ministers, two pastoring in Pennsylvania, one serving within a church in D.C., and the other who, because of illness, was not able to pastor and who died in 1982. So I would visit. She put me in places where the Lord could speak to me. Hmm. So to church, we would go to denominational congresses. So she put me in environments where the Lord could speak. Yeah. And over time, there became this sense of God calling to ministry that grew in volume and grew in weight. My uncles did everything that they could to discourage it. Hmm. because they did not want it to be a matter of the family business. Yeah. So they did everything that they could to say, no, no, that's not God. No, you know, and I had a pastor and Catholic priests who provided listening ears and helped me discern and accept And when my uncle saw that despite their roadblocks, that there was this consistent discernment and commitment, then they said, okay. But it was a growing awareness, volume and weight. And let me know, yeah, you could practice medicine and be very successful at it, but you will not be happy. This is the path. Now, my stepfather, he did not accept that very well. In the beginning, because he was looking at a successor to the practice. Mm -hmm. My mother was more like Mary, who pondered these things in her heart. Mm. Right. Pondered them in her heart. Now, my dad, you know, he's he's proud. But initially, he was somewhat resistant. Yeah. And I understand that. 
that's so neat to hear how they all these different people were were listening ears for you and and just your mom putting you in those environments to be able to hear and to listen from God is incredible. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it was a true gift. Yeah. What were some points along the way from that point that led to your eventual your current position now? What were some key moments in your ministry that maybe really affirmed that this is my calling and this is this was the right decision that I made. So graduating from high school and going to Morehouse College, this was in 1981. This was also the time of the Atlanta child murders that were going on. And so there, <laughs> needless to say, there was a little bit of trepidation about me going to Morehouse in Atlanta at that time. Yeah. However, for me, there was no better place that I could have gone for a couple of reasons. One is the expressed aim of Morehouse to develop Black males as leaders in their given fields. That's their purpose. Secondly, within that, then the religion and philosophy department was known for developing ministers who could think critically, who had a sense of commitment and vision that was broad Mm -hmm. and that was deep. And then I was blessed to be a part of both a local church whose pastor saw, welcomed, gave opportunity for the expression of my gifts and abilities. And I was a part of an intercollegiate choir. Mm -hmm. And that also gave opportunity for the expression of gifting and ability. So having college professors who were mentors, who saw, having a pastor who saw, and having peers who saw, that was unique. And quite a gift during one's college years when there could have been opportunities for it to go totally differently without those things that I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Then having the opportunity to go to seminary in Pittsburgh at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And I I chose that because I had two uncles pastoring in the same area. So the opportunity to learn from them while receiving the academic was a unique opportunity and Mm -hmm. gift. And in my middle year, I was called to pastor a church. So I was 22 then. (laughs) 22, very much single. And yet this congregation, Morning Star Baptist Church in West Mifflin, Pennsylvania, saw something and acted on it. And there was no better first church experience that I could have ever had. Well, yes, there were challenges. The church set right between a public housing project and a residential community during a time of economic downturn. Mills had closed, right? And so all of the systems upon which these mill communities had depended upon were now gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
and the despair and the dislocation, all that comes with that. That was the environment of my first pastorate externally. Yeah. But internally was a community of believers who were resolute and resilient and who were loving Mm -hmm. and who gave me space and room to be and to develop. So that would have been in 1987 when Mm -hmm. they called. And in 1989, the Lord just spoke and said, your time here is just about up. Nothing was wrong. You know, there there were no problems. I loved where I was, loved being with the people, had deep relationships. But the Lord said, your time is about up. And from September of 1989 to May of 1990, that would be the process of discerning what that meant. Mm. In the course of that time, several churches expressed interest in my being their pastor, the last of which was University Park, now the Park Church. Mm. And the way that I discerned that was the other two. I could attribute to natural reasons why they would. One was in Pittsburgh, where I was already known, had connections. The other was in Jackson, Mississippi, my home. The pastor wanted me to succeed him. Mm -hmm. But I was an unknown commodity in Charlotte. There was none of that. And I met none of their qualifications. (laughs) (laughs) So if they called, it would have to be God. Yeah. And that's how I ended up in Charlotte. Before we get back to today's episode, I want to tell you about a new book from IVP. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you may recall an interview we conducted with pastor, author, and poet Drew Jackson about his book, God Speaks Through Wombs, a reflection on the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke in poetry form. Well, I have some exciting news for you. Drew is back with a new book called Touch the Earth, which picks up where we left off in chapter 9 and continues through the end of Luke's gospel. One of the best ways to describe it is part protest poetry, part biblical commentary. I don't know about you, but for me, poetry has this way of interrupting my often black and white perspectives with a flood of new colors and dimensions I didn't even realize existed. And Touch the Earth is no exception, so stay tuned until the end of the episode to learn about a special discount on Drew's book. And now, back to the show. Bishop, you've been at your church for decades now, which is just incredible. Taking into consideration all those years of ministry and the fact that you're on the boards of many different evangelical institutions, including InterVarsity, what are some things you think many evangelicals need to understand about the Black church and its members that perhaps they don't understand? Wow. That's a podcast. (laughs) So one, to get at that, I would say there is a book that I co-authored with Mac Peer. It's entitled Required God's Call to Justice, Mercy, and Humility to Overcome Racial Tension, which really gets at some of this, Mm -hmm. right? So I'll give you a really condensed version. One is that the, what we know as the Black church 
arose as a response to discrimination and out of the need to affirm the legitimacy of the religious experience and expression of Black people. And therefore, in many ways, the Black church functions in ways similar to the synagogue for Jews than the cathedral for white Christians. What do I mean by that? The synagogue is not just the place of religious instruction, but it is also the custodian of cultural survival and identity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That is what the Black church is, has been. It is both the place for religious formation and it is also the custodian of culture. That'd be the first thing. The second thing is that Black Christian spirituality, by necessity, could not afford the luxury of duality. And by that, I mean a separation between the sacred and the secular. No, there's no, not that separation. And the very early in the development of the Black church's theology was the locating its story with Israel's story of people being formed in bondage, experiencing the liberation of God through Moses, searching for a land of promise, and then seeing itself also in the life of Jesus. And not just clinging to Jesus's death as atonement and reconciliation, but identifying with Jesus's death as suffering so that the hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord, the spiritual, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Identifying with his death and resurrection, not just in terms of atonement, justification, and eternal life, but the ability to suffer and transcend its own suffering. And this, therefore, this call not just to see people saved, receiving Christ, but seeing the society saved, Mm -hmm. transformed, and the call for justice and righteousness, not two separate things, but being together. I guess the third, and Barna's research and others bear it out, the Black church on the whole takes the Bible seriously. And I guess the fourth and perhaps most important thing for this time, this season, is that the Black church knows what it means to be and minister on the margin and can help tutor the rest of American Christianity on how to do the same. And perhaps this is the opportunity for the white church in particular, to learn. Well, thank you for sharing that. I realize that's a topic that requires a lot of nuance, and you were able to condense that in such a helpful way. A quick note to our listeners who want to look further into the book mentioned, again, that's Required, that Bishop Alexander co-authored with Mac Peer, which is not an IVP book, but addresses those issues just discussed. Now, moving on to your first book with IVP, 
necessary Christianity. What was going on in the world, in your ministry, and in your life that brought this book to fruition? So it started in 2009 is when the first seeds began to germinate. And I, I had turned 45 and I came to the startling realization that one, I probably have more years behind than I might have in front. Two, that I was as grown as I was ever going to be. I'm as grown as anybody else. The only difference is they might have more mileage on the tread, right? And that it was a very, very freeing revelation and time. This was also the time that I was, again, reading through the Bible. I, my devotional habit is to take a one-year Bible and read through it each year. And I began to, as I was reading the various gospel stories, narratives, was seeing these must statements. And so very often when we're teaching or preaching and dealing with Jesus, we deal with the I am, the I am statements. Mm -hmm. But not much attention is paid to these must statements by Jesus, about Jesus, et cetera. And I was also becoming quite sensitive to the consumeristic nature of the faith, where the whole notion of obligation, duty, surrender, those things are just off the shelf. And because as a consumer, it is about what I acquire and how it is instrumental to me. As a disciple, it's about how I surrender and my availability to be used by God. Mm -hmm. A consumer may pick something up off the shelf and use it. A disciple must give him or herself to the leading of God. Yeah. And so seeing, beginning to see these things, right, and delve into them. The notion of translating that into a book really came in 2013. And I was on sabbatical. And what had prompted the sabbatical was the untimely death of my brother at the age of 38 due to squamous cell cancer of the tongue. And one of the things that I had to come to terms with was his having less years and my having more years and how I can honor that with how I live my more years. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he constantly prodded me about doing was writing a book. And so to honor him, that's how I started giving myself to that. I didn't realize that this book had been over a decade in the making. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. I'm curious, was any particular chapter more challenging to write than the others? Was Mm. there, I don't know, was there any time where even the stories from scripture that you reference in each chapter, that that was challenging to work through or... Or maybe even just the writing process was was more difficult? Or was it pretty similar throughout? I think that probably the one, the one that 
probably hits me the most is the one that deals with John chapter nine. And so this would be chapter five, which speaks to the notion of diligence and the notion of, of Jesus dealing with both the disciples and revealing something about himself. So the background is they see this person blind from birth. They ask Jesus, who is it that sinned? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And in it, Jesus reveals this notion of discernment, urgency, and maximization. One is, what is God up to, right? In, in the most difficult of situations, right? Mm-hmm. A person who's been blind from birth, years of blindness, years of being in the dark, years of estrangement, years of whatever adjective you could use. Yeah. And how does one discern the presence and purpose of God within that, right? Mm-hmm. And then once you discern it, how do you respond? Urgency. And this notion of maximization. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, right? So, so the urgency, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. I have a limited amount of time, but within this limited amount of time, I am committed to bringing all that I have. Mm. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, right? So I may not know how much time I have, but for whatever time that I do have, I'm bringing my full self. And I think that, again, with my brother having died the way that he died and the age that he died, and it's not just him. I mean, there are many people whose deaths remind me of the urgency of the time that we have. Mm-hmm. Because we do not determine how long, but we can determine how well we live within it. Yeah, it's powerful. Thank you. I, I can't wait for readers to be able to, <laughs> to pick that up and, and read through your book. It's, it's really exciting. I was wondering if you, if you might have any words of advice or even words of encouragement you would offer to aspiring writers of color. To aspiring writers of color, I would say, first of all, there is a unique contribution that can only be made by you. There is both a sound as well as a vision that is uniquely yours to give. And the understanding, the full understanding of God and God's work in the world can only be comprehended when you come to the table. And so there is an imperative that is placed upon you to come to the table and to realize that there are those who desire for you to come to the table and who have a hunger for what is yours to put at the table. 
Is there any advice you would add for those in vocational ministry? So one of the things that now being, I mean, for me to say this, being in ministry for 41 years (laughs) and having served in pastoral ministry for a combined 35 of those 41 years. There are a couple of things that I would lift to those young in the ministry. First, that this is a calling. This is a calling. It cannot be approached as a career. If it is approached as a career, there will be things that you will face that will prompt you to consider a career change. As a calling, it is not something that you have chosen. It is a matter of your having been chosen and you're surrendering yourself to the choice of God and what that means. That's number one. The second thing that I would say is the importance of the stewardship of relationships. Perhaps the greatest gift that God gives any of us is relationship. And he invests those relationships in us based upon the purposes that he has in eternity that are revealed to us in time. And it is only as those relationships are stewarded well that you are able to see what God has in mind in time. Mm -hmm. If you do not steward them well, you will not see it. So much of my life, what I'm doing now, is a result of those relationships and how God has used them. That's the second piece. The third piece is the notion of priority. And what you consider to be the best thing that you can offer a church or ministry to which you are called. I have learned the best thing that I can offer, number one, is a healthy me. That's first. The second thing, if I'm married, is a healthy marriage or a healthy singleness. Third is a healthy family, if I have one. And then fourth is whatever ministry production comes from me. And the reason I say that is because you can produce content and not be healthy, and that is not sustainable, right? And I think the last thing that I would say, which is perhaps the most important, the foundation upon which we stand, being Christ and God's word, are firm and unshakable. And while there will be situations and episodes and circumstances and seasons that may seek to shake you, that foundation will hold you fast. Bishop Alexander, it's been an absolute pleasure having this conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your incredible wisdom with us. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a joy. And now we want to share with all of you, our listeners, that if you visit ivpress.com and use the code EDN40, you can get 40% off plus free U.S. shipping on Bishop Claude Alexander's books, Necessary Christianity, and Becoming the Church, as well as the other IVP resource mentioned in this episode. Again, that's code EDN40. So visit our site to get a great deal on these books. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast brought to you by IVP. Our producers and hosts are Paloma Lee and Helen Lee. 
If you're enjoying our show, we would welcome your reviews and recommendations. You can also support our efforts financially at everyvoicenow.com. And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at everyvoicenow or visit the site for show notes, transcripts, and more. And join us next time for another inspiring episode. Thank you.